The following audio is from Cross Life Church in Tampa, Florida. We are a church that exists to help people find Christ, their place in the body, and their mission to the world. Our calling is to raise leaders and plant churches. So if you live in the Hudson area or near Wesley Chapel, you can also check us out at one of our other locations. For more information, visit us at crosslife.net. We are in John chapter 8 this morning. So as we've been walking through the Gospel of John, you know, one of the things that just continues to uh, be front and center for me as I read and have continued to read through the gospel, is that John just, he just keeps narrowing down some simple truths to the, pe- to the people. So again, John is 40, 50 years later from when Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection And he's looking back over that period of time and his gospel is the last of the gospels written, one of the last letters written. And he just, I love it because he just goes, look, there's a lot out there, but here's the things you need to know. And I think for us in our culture today, back then, the church was just, it was going a lot of different directions. And I think it's pretty typical uh, to see that today, the church going in a lot of different directions. And as a body of Christ, as children of God, we need to focus in on the main things. Jesus' words, I love so often, when you read through Peter, or you read through John, or you read through Paul, they, they just start going, look, here's the important things that we need to know and that we need to get right. Are there all those other things? Yeah, they are, but here's the primary principles that we need to govern our lives by. And so, you know, they're just, again, there's, all kinds of ways that you can just begin to direct your life, but there are a few things that you just, as a body of Christ, we just need to get right. And so I love that about the Gospel of John. So I made mention that in chapter 6 and chapter 7, when we went through that, we just see the, um, we just see how there was a growing uh, tension There was a growing jealousy. There was a growing animosity which led to hatred from the religious leaders toward Jesus as he just kept bringing the truth of the gospel of the, really bringing the truth of the kingdom of God to light because the religious leaders have just, they had shifted, they had drifted away from it. He just kept trying to say, that's not true. You've heard this, but this is what's true. That is not the correct way to think about that. And really, as you read through, we see that Jesus going, where is your heart? What's here? You're doing all this outwardly, but really, what's here? And I think that that is really uh, magnified in our account this morning in uh, John chapter 8. So we saw that last week, as Tony was here, and he walked through the, uh, chapter 7, we just see that it ends with basically the religious leaders, they just totally dismissed Jesus, and really the die is cast. We will not receive anything that he has to say. And there was just this total rejection of Jesus. And so the last verse says of chapter 7 says that when this account had finished with Jesus in the temple, uh, everyone went to his own house. But in John chapter 8, it says everyone went to their own house, but Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. 
Now, um, how many of you in here have John chapters one through uh, John chapter eight, one through eleven in your Bibles, uh, in your translation? Raise your hands. Is it in? Is it in your Bible? And how many Bibles is it not in that that you have? Because what we need to understand is that these this eleven verses. Uh, they are not found in early manuscripts, but they are in later manuscripts. And so, you know, a lot of people say, do we even consider them? Because they weren't in the earlier manuscripts. You know, some say we should, some say we shouldn't. But most agree, as I've studied through this, not just uh, leading up to today, but prior, most believe that this was an actual event that took place, and then they just added this into the Gospel of John. Actually, it's in some manuscripts, it's in other places, um, because they believe it was really a historical event that took place during Jesus' ministry. And when we read through it, and we look at it, it's, it's so Jesus to do. Because what He does is He really... That for me, the whole intent in this with this woman caught in adultery, we see just this mercy and forgiveness of Jesus, but it's balanced with a call to live a holy life. And so it's kind of, for me, a predominant thing. And I think it reminds us that Jesus didn't come into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. And I think so often when we're sharing the gospel with people and we're trying to tell them about Jesus, for some reason they think that we're trying to condemn them. And it's, yeah, no, I'm, we're, no, it's not what I'm trying to do. I'm trying to give you some good news. I'm trying to tell you that Jesus came, he lived, he died, and rose again for a specific purpose. And that was to rescue your life from sin to break the bondage of sin in your life, to, to, to bring you to where you need to be, to bring you into this relationship that God had intended from the beginning, and that is fellowship with Him. And so, let's just uh, read the account in uh, John chapter 8, verses 1 through 11. It says, But Jesus went to the Mount of Olives, and at dawn He appeared again in the temple courts where all the people gathered around him, and he sat down to teach them. The teachers of the law and the Pharisees brought in a woman caught in adultery. And they made her stand up before the group and said to Jesus, Teacher, this woman was caught in the very act of adultery. Now, in the law of Moses, it commands us to stone such a woman. Now, what do you say? And they were using this question as a trap in order to have a basis for accusing him. It says, but Jesus bent down, started to ride on the ground with his finger, and when they kept on questioning him, he straightened up and said to them, let anyone who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. And then again, he stooped down and rode on the ground. At this, those who heard him began to go away one at a time, the older ones first, until only Jesus was left with the woman standing there. Jesus straightened up and asked her, Woman, where are your accusers? Has no one condemned you? No one, sir, she said. Well, then neither do I condemn you, Jesus declared. Go now and leave your life of sin. And again, as I said at the start, to me, this account just really continues to expose the hypocrisy of these religious leaders to entrap Jesus because they were doing this 
They brought this woman before Jesus for one specific reason. It was to try to dismiss him, to try to entrap him, to try to accuse him. And so it was, uh, this had nothing to do with their really trying to seek justice. Uh, if it would have been, think about it, if they were really trying to get, if this was really this woman's sin and they really wanted justice, why would they take him to Jesus? Think about it. In the religious leaders' minds, and in a lot of the people's minds, this Jesus of Nazareth was a son of a carpenter. What did he have to do with the judicial law in Israel? What they should have done, if it was really true justice they were seeking, they should have taken him to where they should have, and that is to their council to have the woman brought before them. So really, Jesus, in the, in the respect of the way they thought, had nothing to do with it. So it just, again, shows that they brought him to Jesus to try to um, entrap him. And so it's funny, too, when you think about it, uh, they're taking him to Jesus for Jesus to give the sentence of execution on the woman. And in that day, the Jews didn't have the authority to to execute anyone. Rome had taken that away from them. Remember, they're under Roman occupation. And so only Rome could decide who lives and who dies. And when in John chapter 18, when they brought the, uh, they brought Jesus before Pilate, they said, hey, we need you to, we need you to try this man. And they said, he, they said to the religious, will you try him? They said, well, our, the law does not permit, your law does not permit us to execute anyone. So this whole thing was just this sham trial. And I, I get to think of so much this trap that they laid. I mean, just think of the scheming that, that, that took place. And how many times did the religious leaders try to trip Jesus up? So, uh, in real time, think how often the religious leaders got together and said, okay, we don't like what's going on. This guy's getting a lot of recognition. Um, the people are following him. We don't want that. We got to figure out a way. We, we got we to figure out some kind of way to discredit this guy. We got to find some kind of way to get him out of the way. And so they're scheming and somebody's, I got the perfect situation, right? Well, here's the trap. If Jesus had pronounced judgment on the woman and they would have stoned her, Jesus would have been guilty by Roman law for doing it. And he would have been arrested and who knows what would have taken place after the rest if he had been put to death. So the Jews are thinking, well, we can get rid of Jesus. And if he had have dismissed it altogether, then the Jews would accuse him of not keeping the law of Moses. So it's kind of a catch-22. And I love this because when you read of all the other accounts, like, the, like with, uh, uh, should we pay tribute to Caesar? You know, they figured they were going to catch Jesus. He's going to say no, and then the Romans are going to, you know, we can get rid of this guy. And he goes, I don't know whose image is on the coin. Well, it's Caesar's. Well, then give to Caesar what's Caesar's. But give to God what's God's. So often uh, this has happened uh, through the accountings in the gospel. 
And so another thing about this, um, you know, that the accusers, if you think about this, the accusers, they, they're very explicit. They said, we caught this woman in the very act of adultery. It's like we barged in her and caught her red-handed. And in doing so, um, it really showed in the, their scheming in the whole thing. And it showed their hypocrisy. Because what is significant about this is when they saw her in the very act of adultery, they also knew the man involved. Now, the reason that that is significant is, so, you know, they're going, the law says, and we keep the law. The law said that the man and the woman were guilty, and the man and the woman should receive the very same punishment. So they're going, you know, it's almost like, I wonder, uh, as Jesus is confronting them, they weren't keeping the law to start with. They weren't doing what was right to start with because the guy's nowhere around. Maybe they had some kind of vendetta against this woman. I don't know. It doesn't really say. But the man should have been there with her. And so, again, just really revealing that this is some kind of trap. They're not really out for justice. And so, one other thing about this account is that, so Jesus is in the temple. Now, I had made comment that, you know, there's a lot of people uh, in Jerusalem, and he's in the temple teaching. His, um, his, uh, what I want to say, uh, his popularity, quote unquote, had really blossomed. And so he's in the temple. It doesn't say how many people are there, but there's a lot of people there. And he's teaching in the temple. And so a lot of people there, and these accusers, they bring this woman, they drag her out of her affair, drag her before the people and made this public spectacle But they made a public spectacle not just to embarrass the woman or shame her, but to try to discredit Jesus publicly. Which, as you read through the accounts, every time they try to do it, it just backfired. And once again, in this accounting, it backfires. So, they said to Jesus, they brought her in, they said to Jesus, the law says... This is what the law says. But what do you say? And I love this because basically Jesus just ignores his accusers. It's like he didn't hear them. And so verse 6 says, again, they said this testing him that they might have something of which to accuse him. But Jesus, he just stooped down and wrote on the ground with his finger as though he did not hear. Now, I don't know about you guys, but as I have studied this recently and through the years, everybody wants to know, everybody speculates about what he wrote on the ground. You know, what did he write? Maybe did he start writing their names? Maybe did he write, start writing their sins on the ground? Did he start writing the Ten Commandments? 
Oh, we don't know. Nobody knows. But I think that um, in studying, there's this, there's this, I think there's this little hint that he wrote something that was causing them pause. Because when you look at the word specifically, um, for write, it's graphe. And this word used is katagraphine, which means to write something against. Kata is against. And so whatever Jesus wrote, it seems as though he wrote something that was accusatory toward them, against them. So who knows what that is? And again, that's really not important. That's really not the point of the story. The point of the story is a, the, a revealing of their hypocrisy, trying to highlight this woman's sin and just not seeing theirs in it. Because their heart toward it was not, again, it wasn't toward justice. And so in verse 7 and 8, so Jesus, he's bent down, he's riding on the ground, completely ignoring him. And what they do is they just keep questioning him. And if you've seen some of the, some of the chosen, or you've seen the Passion of Christ, or you've seen some movies where situations like this were there, and it just seemed like one person after another is just shouting out, what are you going to do about it? What's the sentence? So who knows all what kept going on, but it says when they kept on, they kept on questioning him. I love it. It says that he, so he's down there. He just, he straightens up and just looks him in the eye. He looks at the accusers. And when he does, he says to them, let any one of you who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. And then he just stoops down again. And that just cooks. And it says that when it did happen, who were the first to leave? Yeah, the older ones. It's like, that is not what we expected. <laughs> you know, they don't want to be like the last one standing there looking foolish. I'm not sure. But it is interesting that John points out that the older ones left first. So basically what he does is he just puts this responsibility back on them. Now, when he says that, the, again, uh, well, if, if you're without sin, then you throw, throw the first stone. And again, the passage just reveals this hypocrisy. But here's what Jesus did. He upheld the law. He said, okay, well, if she's guilty, you throw the first stone. If you don't have sin, you throw the first stone. And here's what's interesting. The law. Here's the law. And again, they're just, they're breaking their own law, first of all, by not bringing the man. And then secondly, they're breaking their own law in this way. Because the law commanded that those who testify to a capital crime, which they said this was, must be the first to begin the process of execution by stoning. So Jesus says to them, he stands up and he says, all right then, if she's guilty, 
then the law, he didn't say it, but they knew it. It was there. But the law says, okay, if that's the truth, then you stone the woman. It's your responsibility, according to the law, for you to begin the execution of this woman. You start it. Now that's a whole different deal. Now what's going on is, uh uh-oh, if we do what we're supposed to do according to the law, we're in trouble with Rome. So the older ones, they, I'm not getting busted, I'm gone. And so they leave the oldest to the youngest. There's always some self-righteous punk there. So, if you found her in sin and brought her to be judged, it's your responsibility to carry out the death sentence. And again, nothing to do with a woman, really. Everything to do about trying to trip Jesus up. And so, he just really began, at this point, he just really exposed the heart and the hypocrisy of his accusers. Now, let me just say something here. Um, you know, there, there, is, there, are, there is a necessity in the church to deal with stuff. There is a necessity at times in the church when people are wayward that we confront them. We bring it to their attention. Sometimes what happens is, is that they're unaware, really, of what they're doing and what the gospel has to say, what God's word has to say about it, and you have to instruct them. And sometimes you have to intervene in situations because of things of injustices that are not right. But all of it has to do with the heart of the individual. I don't know about you, how many of you have ever had someone come up and try and confront you about a sin that they got, and there it's like... It, it's all over them that it's really not about love and compassion towards you. It's this kind of a self-righteous thing that they have about them that they're judging you. See, because when you really love someone, probably what's going to be happening is tears in your face when you're trying to help them understand where they are and have been misguided or in sin and you want to help them because you understand the enemy behind it as trying to trip them up. You see a clear picture that the enemy is trying to ruin their life and your heart and your compassion toward them as you are broken by it. Maybe even willfulness, you're broken by their willfulness to do it, but your heart is not to to point a finger and to slam down the gavel. It's to reason. And it's to open up your life and it's to share, to try to help them escape the clutches of the enemy and walk back into the grace of God. So, again it says, beginning with the older ones until Jesus was left alone with the woman. And then when they, he, so he stooped down through this hole, he stands up, says that to him, he stoops back down, continues writing in the ground. Now, I don't know what that's all about. If, his, if he started with the Ten Commandments, he's getting on down to them, you know. Who knows if he continued writing the same thing? 
But when they're all gone, and who, know, who knows how long that took before they're all gone, when they're all gone, then Jesus stands up and faces the woman, and he said, where are they? Where are the ones that brought accusation against you? And she said, well, they're not here. No, there's no one here. Where are those that condemn you? And they're, they're not here. And Jesus said, well, I'm not condemning you either. Go and sin no more. And I think that's significant because Jesus, you know, how often is it that we just think we can do whatever we want and do wrong and, and God's just going to let us get away with it? That, that there's not this, there's this line that he's, how many of you are living in a particular way where God just doesn't, oh, I understand that you have this trouble and uh, it's okay, I got you, I, I know where you all just keep overlooking that. No, uh-uh, that, that never happens, well, at least for me. Anytime I'm doing stupid, I don't know about you. Maybe, you, you know, maybe my learning curve is longer. Maybe my head is a little thicker. Maybe my ears are a little duller. But I can tell you how the Holy Spirit speaks to me. Uh, you need to stop that, and you need to do that now. It's not like, it's okay, it's okay. You'll eventually get there. Well, let me just tell you some truths about that. We all will eventually get somewhere. But it's not by Jesus saying, it's okay, I forgive you. That, that never comes across to me. I don't know about you. It never comes across to me that way. It is always, I'm convicted. That means I'm conscious of what I'm doing wrong, realizing I need to do differently. And that's how, when the Spirit of, in, in the Spirit of God... I never sense him in a demeaning way. But I can tell you right now, being a dad, there's just time you got to take your kid aside and go, <clears throat> here's the deal. And you just got to give it to him straight. Are you, are you doing it? He's ruining my life. Are you kidding me? You're out playing in traffic with an opportunity of you getting run over, and I'm ruining your fun. No, I'm watching out for your life because I know where you're at and where it is and where it will lead to, and I know it will destroy you. So always when the Spirit of God chastens us or speaks to us in some way, He knows things that we might not know or things we may not want Him to be looking at. So it's important for us to understand that Jesus didn't just say, neither do I condemn you. He says it in a very explicit way. Go your way and sin no more. Stop this life of sin. That's what he's saying to the woman. Now, for me, I think there's probably a few things that we can gather from what these words that Jesus said. First of all, he recognized that what the woman was doing and had done was sin because he told her to stop it. Secondly, he told her to repent, to stop sinning. 
And then third, I think, in it is this exhortation to her that it's possible for her to live a life without that. To live a lifestyle differently than what she's living. Now, I can tell you right now, uh, all of us, if you have been saved uh, later in life, uh, you understand that, uh, man, there's just, how am I, how am I going to, oof, how am I going to, I mean, I'm, ooh, and he wants me to live, ah, how's that going to happen? But what we need to understand is the, what's it say? It says, uh, we've been given exceeding great and precious promises by these, we might escape the lust that is in the world through sin, so that we can live this life that God had intended us to live. So we need to keep that in mind. No matter what you're facing, I, I can't do that. True. You cannot. But you are not living this life by yourself. Because if you're born again, you have the Spirit of God resident in your life who enables you to live a life that honors God. And is that a process? Absolutely, that's a process. If you think that you're going to come to Christ and you're never going to have issues again, we all know, sitting here, everyone can raise their hand and say, oh, not going to happen. Because we are being conformed into the image of His Son. So, you know, we've all had this... Well, we've all sinned. Let's face it. What the enemy wants to do when you are away from God and you're living in sin... He doesn't want any light in, because when the light comes in, you begin to see things, right? But what takes place, what overtakes, is this self-accusatory voice. I'm not worthy. How many times, I mean, in my first few years of being a Christian, because the way my dad was and the way I was raised, if I did everything right, he said nothing. If I did anything wrong, it was, boom, bring the hammer down. And so how, is that? How, how am I going to figure this out, how to, how to live a life that honors God when I have this voice that is, you're not worthy. And that's really the voice of the enemy. And that voice of the enemy is like, we allow it in our life, and it's like this self-imposed cage that we live in. I'm, I'm, I'm self-imposed. Self-imposed. Because when you are there, there is a way of escape for every one of us. So what are we supposed to do? How many times have I made comment about what repentance is? It's a 180, I'm living this way, and I know it's not the way I'm supposed to be living, and all of a sudden I realize that it's wrong. Is that repentance? No. If I realize it's wrong and say I should do that, is that repentance. If I realize it's wrong and I realize I should do it and I do a few things right, is that repentance? Repentance is a 180 walking away from and embracing something else. And that is the love, the forgiveness, and the grace of God. There's where you escape the cage. Because this is a cage over here. And Jesus has given us the ability through the Holy Spirit and the grace and because of His death on the cross to Free us from sin, the bondage of sin. 
and liberate us into a new life. How good is that? Wow. All right, turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 7. And let's just take a few minutes to talk about this. Because as I'm going through this accounting, these are the verses that just keep coming to mind. Somebody want to read that for me? Chapter 7, verses 1 through 5. Okay, verse 1 basically says, you should not judge. Now let me just think, that doesn't mean that you shouldn't have any judgment. But it means you're not the one to pass sentence. Don't pass sentence on other people because that'll come right back on you. Because the way you do that, it'll be dealt back to you. So thoughts about that? Anybody? How, how does it proceed? It says, how can you, how can, if your life is not right, and you have wrong motive, how, how is it possible that you would have the discernment, the wisdom, or the ability to help your brother when this is in your life? I did a, a message years and years ago, and I, I got this uh, styrofoam 4 by 4 and I put it to my eye, this beam in your eye, and I tried to reach my brother to help him, and there was no way I could reach him because this was in between us. This, these verses, look, in the church, I can tell you right now, if any one of us around any one of us, for a long periods of time, you're going to see their humanness. Their flesh will just kind of, it'll just hang out, right? You will see it. I mean, we all have issues. I had someone ask me, he said, you know, because you were a drug addict and that whole thing, and because of your lifestyle, I'm sure you're hard on these guys that are in addiction and dealing with it. I said, oh, no, you kidding me? I have huge amounts of grace toward them because I understand the deception and the darkness that they're living in. And I understand that it's going to take them a little bit for the light to keep opening up so they can see the reality of who they are and where they are. And so for me, I mean, you know, over all the years that Denise and I have been pastoring, we've had lots of people with lots of issues. And when they come, it's, Father, I just, what I need is I need a right heart and I need a right attitude. This isn't about me, it's about them. I need you to be able to help me to help them. And Father, forgive me. I mean, I, I got stuff. What I need for you is move through that, pass that, because they're coming to me, so I need you to extend yourself through me to them. You share with them your heart toward them. See, if we can get there, because again, what is it in your life? <laughs> it's something. And you say, well, it's not the biggies. I love Paul's in Galatians, I think it's Galatians, where he talks through the list of the sins of the flesh, adultery, murder, gossip, unforgiveness, 
You know, the, he didn't, he, it's all together. And so when we start saying, that, well, that one's bigger than that one, it, no, and who of us don't have it? So the encouragement today is that as a body of Christ, our heart should be for God to flow through us to enable to help a brother or sister. To be, get from where they are to where they need to be. So Father, this morning as we have considered your word, I know that you've been saying a lot to each and every one of us. And I'm just praying that those words just stick. So many truths, so many good principles concerning you and your word and your way. I just want that really to resonate out of our life as a body of Christ. And, and not just within the body, but outside the body. The reality is, and we're in the world, sinners sin. We shouldn't expect anything different. Should we be judgmental or critical toward them? No, we should be empathetic toward them. We should have sympathy toward them. We should have grace for them. We should have forgiveness for them because that is the only pathway that is going to open up into their hearts and lives to lead them to you. So I pray once again in this crazy world which we live in, just everybody's running helter-skelter to destruction with their fingers in their ears not wanting to listen. I pray that you would help us be this stream of grace into other people's lives. In Jesus' name, amen.